1: This is an MPB Think Radio podcast.
2: Hi, I'm Dr. Susan Buttress, host of Southern Remedies Relatively Speaking, a show that explores issues that relate to you and your family, from mental health obstacles and family interactions to handling life's disruptions. Whatever it is, we're here to help. Find out what we're all about and subscribe to the podcast by using any podcast app, or by
3: downloading our MPB Public Media app.
4: Good morning, this is Southern Remedy. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, and this is the program where you can call in with any type of healthcare question or issue that you might be dealing with. That's right. You get to dictate our content for the day. That's uh, what we do on Wednesdays on the Original Southern Remedy. And you can call in with symptoms that you might be having, maybe some frustrations with different things that you may have been trying, and maybe some questions about new medications that you've been given, potential side effects, or anything really that has to do with your health care or the health care of someone near and dear to you. You can always send us an email. We do try to get to those as soon as we can and share those with our listening audience if you give us permission to do that. That email address is remedy at mpbonline.org. Beautiful weather outside. I hope your normal day-to-day gives you a little bit of time to enjoy this. Probably my favorite time of the year in Mississippi is that sort of Early to mid-spring, where things are a little bit cool in the evenings, uh, the humidity really hasn't socked in as much, and it gets up into the upper 70s or 80s during the day. It's just absolutely gorgeous outside. So I hope that you are getting at least a little bit of time to do that. I know there are some really small ways that can really lift you up, even if you walk, you work inside, you know, in in my work on UMC's campus, um, a lot of times I'll have to walk back and forth between meetings, and instead of on a day like today, instead of going down a covered hallway with the nice fluorescent lighting or LED lighting now, I'll go outside and uh, just sort of pick my routes between meetings where I can get some fresh air and just enjoy the sunshine. It certainly can lift your uh, lift your spirits and mood during the day, so I encourage you to do that. Just one little thing you can do to improve how you feel day to day, because that's important. We've got our first caller on the line. Uh, This is Cleon from Henley. Good morning, Cleon.
1: Good morning, doctor. I'm calling for the sake of a friend. Sure. uh, She's been suffering severe back pain for over five years. And she has been through all kinds of physical therapy, orthopedic surgeons. Finally, her chiropractor diagnosed her problem. She went back to the specialist, and they confirmed his diagnosis and referred her to pain relief. She has answered all the questions to prove to them that she's not a junkie. And now everything is on hold because they say that the pump is out of stock. So my questions are two. Well, Yeah. One question is, is there only one manufacturer for a, an implantable pump to give pain relief? Uh, and, and also, wouldn't they be, shouldn't they be giving her some other form of pain relief until she gets this pump?
4: Yeah, great questions on a very common thing that a lot of people deal with, including myself. And uh, although my back pain isn't severe, a lot of people do have chronic severe back pain. And usually that's defined as if you've had back pain beyond six to eight weeks. If it's less than that period of time, most of the time it's a little bit different and we handle it differently. So some of the things I'm about to say for chronic back pain, you don't necessarily need to do those for back pain that just starts. Um, And there are some red flags with some of those ways that they present if you have weakness, if you have um, if you have a loss of uh, sensation down your leg, it may be a little bit different. And how we diagnose that, and what kind of uh, you know ways to uh, to diagnose it. So back pain is very complex. It can be lots of structures that go through the back that can be either impinged or things can happen to them. It sounds like your friend has gone through the normal pathway of that, where you go and see usually your main physician, followed by uh, if that's uh, you know it continues beyond that six to eight week mark, you might want to try physical therapy. Uh, there are some 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 mild uh, medications that you can use during that first period. You know, we used to jump towards total pain cessation, like let's get rid of all the pain, and certainly we want to treat pain and not ignore it. However, we do know now that early on in the in the treatment of back pain that taking things like the opioids uh, that are in pain medications uh, beyond about three days don't really work a lot, so we tend to avoid them because of the long-term risk of, of uh, dependence on that and some of the negative side effects, including death. Um, but, um, you know, physical therapy comes into play. Other medications can be used. And then beyond that, then you start to do some imaging to see what's actually going on. If there's there's an impingement on a nerve or the spinal canal itself, if it's uh, has a, an abnormality to it. And um, and then you get into, you know, really trying to pin down that diagnosis because that's what um, really determines what is the next step. So we've got a lot of different devices, as you mentioned, one of them that can be used by specialists and particularly pain specialists um, to uh, decrease pain to the point where you can. Regain mobility And that's really our goal The goal is not to have No pain whatsoever The goal really is To have Functionality So what can you do To function To the fullest uh, During You know Your day to day activities And what kind of goals We call that goal Mediated therapy <clears throat> So So The pumps, um, you know, I'm not aware of what specific pumps or companies, but it is oftentimes because it is so specialized to certain areas. It's not like you can just, you know, go out and get a pump and put it somewhere in the body to deliver a medication. And there are different medications. Sometimes these pumps deliver small amounts of uh, pain-reducing medications or relaxing agents into that space and it just is in the space. So it's not something if you took by mouth or even through your bloodstream that can get in other places of the body. We want to try to minimize that, but to treat those certain areas. But it is common, both for this type of pump and other types of of medical devices, that only one or two companies will produce that. And the reasons behind that are all of the safety testing that goes into that. Before you can place something like that into the body... Those devices do have an FDA approval in the same way that medications do. So the device approvals are very stringent, and, again, it's to make sure that that is the safest thing that's not going to cause any problems long term. If you think about some of the older devices that went into people like pacemakers, for instance – uh, medtronic is a common pacemaker company well they have to get approval for every time they have a new device that's a little bit different um, if the casing's different because we don't know on some of those depending on what they're made out of what can happen long term to the tissue that that's around so it has to be tested and it's a long process so the investment of that by companies is pretty high to do that you can't just make something out there that would work and there's are somebody could probably come up with a way to do this, a good engineer about how to do this in their backyard, in their home. But when you start to sell those and start to deploy that, you know, it has to go through all this process. So not everybody can do that. Um, So you end up having one or two companies at best that really design that in most situations. And then if you have a problem with manufacturing or with delivery Uh, You know, we've had tons of supply chain problems in the medical field since COVID, uh, because a lot of these are outsourced worldwide, too. So that just complicates things when you have something that interrupts that pathway of getting that to the patient um, or to the surgeon to implant. And. You know, that's the first part of that. I'm not aware if it's just one company or, you know, uh, maybe there's another company. That would be, you know, a good question for her physicians that are going to be putting that in um, if there's an alternative. But probably if they're delaying it, there's not an alternative right now. Now, there are alternatives for other things they can do. And if they're injecting into a space with a pump – I bet they could do that with a short, with a long term, uh, maybe alternative to the medication. Um, you know, as an injection. So certainly, pain specialists can do that very well. Sometimes they do that under imaging, so that they're getting to the right area. Uh, it's not a continuous infusion. It's just something that you go in with a needle, you inject it, and then you come out, and then it stays in that space for a certain amount of time. That might be a good bridge for her depending on what the medication is and depending on the last time that she got it. But um, it's there probably are other alternatives right now that can sort of bridge her over to that other one. And for people who suffer from chronic back pain, again, getting that pain uh, level manageable to the point where they can do the things that they want to do and, and need to do with their day-to-day lives um, there's lots of other things that they can take to. I bet she's, if she's getting an implantable device uh, that's going to deliver this medication constantly, I bet they've probably ch- tried some of these other uh, oral agents. You know, there's like things like gabapentin, lyrica, uh, cymbalta, there's other medications that are, are not necessarily opioids or other pain medications like that but they do impact chronic pain and they can help with the management of that over time so i would tell her to go back to the pain specialist and say hey while we're waiting is there anything else we can do either as an injection or something that i can take that would bridge me over to the point that i can get to that surgery once we get that device in
1: well one more question sure uh in any event should she not Seek a second opinion. What I'm wondering is, possibly, there is a business relationship between the orthopedists and the uh, pain people, uh, because I have, (laughs) I've had um, a specialist argue with me about where I had tests done. Um, He was working for the house, which is fine, Mm -hmm. but. if if a, if a professional is a member of a big organization and he feels a responsibility to help them make money to pay him, maybe a second opinion would give different information or more information
4: yeah, I would hope that 's not the case because ethically um, you know we we 're not supposed to do that, and uh, there certainly are some laws around that in some situations. But yeah, I would. I would definitely seek. I, you know, we just about every every week, every other week, I'll say, look, if anybody's hesitating about getting a second opinion, don't, uh, because that can give you more information. A new set of eyes sometimes can, uh, by somebody who's an expert in the area, can give you more information and maybe give you a different alternative. And the thing I think people don't quite understand is early on, particularly something like back pain. You know the things we know that work are fairly straightforward on the front end of things. Even if it's going to become chronic pain, we know what to do. You know, at, at in the first week or two, in the four to six weeks after that, in the next couple of months. Once you get further and further down the line, then you start getting into that individuality of the problem, and that's not going to be as widely known. And different people are going to approach it a little bit differently. You just need to pick the person that has, A, the most experience, because particularly if you're talking about either a surgical intervention, an injection, or an implantation of a device, you want somebody that has experience doing enough of them so that they become really good at doing it and have a very low side effect or negative you know, um, outcomes. And then also uh, somebody you trust. I mean, trust is a big factor with that, and particularly with pain. You want somebody that you can trust long-term, that you can have that relationship going forward. So I, that that's the couple of things I would say about that to to make sure that, uh, that she's really seeking that out.
1: I will transmit that to her, but final footnote. Sure. Like you, I hope that it is very rare, but I have had the personal experience uh, in the last year or two of a specialist arguing and arguing with me about where I was going to have a test done, because I had chosen to have it done uh, at a place where they were transparent about expense and they were polite and businesslike, and uh, <laughs> minutes and minutes, he just held forth, no, you should have it done here. Uh so, it, it, like I said, it gave me the impression that he was working a lot harder for the house than he was for me. I hope it is rare, like you do, too. Thank you for all the information. I appreciate sure,
4: it. Sure, absolutely. Yeah, that is, um, uh, you know, there is actually a new law that's in place now that where uh, hospitals and other places that do, you know, they have to be uh, up front with how much something's going to cost. And I can't remember the exact... Uh, language in the law, but basically it says that hospitals and physicians' groups and offices have to do that. They have to tell you upfront how much something is going to cost, uh, particularly if there's going to be some out-of-pocket expenses with that. So it's um, sort of a truth in advertising about things type of thing, and hopefully that'll cut through some of this. Because again, I, you know, when I hear that, uh, I'm my stomach just sort of turns over a little bit because um, what should happen with physicians and with anybody who's taking care of your health care is that they do the best for you that's going to be the most convenient. A lot of times I'll have patients that they'll drive in three, four hours sometimes, sometimes depending on the you know out of state even. And a lot of those I will say, what's the easiest for you? I'm going to need to get some labs in a couple of months. What's near you, either a hospital or a clinic? And we can arrange to do that. Um, And certainly most physicians in most circumstances aren't set up to get paid or they don't get any money for the labs that they get at their own institution. There's no direct payment there. And again, there are some laws that prevent a lot of that imaging too, but you're right. I mean, in some instances I can see, unfortunately, individuals that they may advocate for that because it's going to benefit them or their organization in certain ways. Convenience sometime is another one because it's a lot easier to see things, but with our health records now and with so many people using, Similar health record systems. It's pretty easy to do that even at different places. So what I teach residents and medical students, I say, you know what you need to do? Well, actually, it comes back to this. The most important person in the room is the patient. And even if that patient's not there in front of you. In every decision that you make, it should be the right one for the patient, and that should guide your thoughts on that every time. So hopefully that'll stick with most people. I hope so. Um, as I've been doing this for about 25 years now, its uh, I would hope that we continue to do things that ethically. This is Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. Dr. Jimmy with you this morning, answering your health care questions about the health of yourself or somebody who is near and dear to you. You can reach us right now with those questions. Uh, you can always email us those questions. That email address is remedy at mpbonline.org. Now, a lot of people, too, they uh, catch the latter half of something. It's like, man, I wish I, sh- I could have you know listened to the first part of that conversation. It sounds like it was a really good one on Southern Remedy you can. You can always go back. You can do that two different ways. You can go directly to our website mpbonline.org and search for Southern Remedy. We do archive our programs there. So you can go back and uh, tune in and sort of scroll forward or beh- or backwards uh, to get that uh, specific information. Or uh, even better than that, you can um, subscribe to our podcast. So any of your favorite podcasting apps, if you'll just search for Southern Remedy on MPB. Think Radio and you can find us there and listen to us at your leisure when it is most convenient for you. Let's go to Jan from Greenwood. Good morning, Jan.
2: Good morning. Good morning. Thank you for taking my call. Sure. I've had I've had a baker's fist yeah. in um, my right knee for, you know, fifteen years or so, and it's just been unsightly but never a major problem. And about two weeks ago, all of a sudden, it just seemed to blow up or expand. And I tried, you know, typical medications, and that didn't really help a whole lot. And um, it just—it hurts, and it and it limits. It just feels like my knee is just really crowded up in there, and that I can't, I can. Totally bend it, but I have to do it very slowly and carefully, and it's obvious that it's not happening.
4: Yep. yep. What
2: should I do about that?
4: Yeah, Jan, you you just described just about every symptom with the Baker's cyst, save a couple. So uh, I'll add a couple to that. Okay. Just um, uh, okay. But you described it very well in very descriptive language. So a Baker's cyst, number one, what is it? So it is a. Um, out of a bursa, which a bursa is just a sack of fluid in a joint space that helps sort of cushion things. So in your knee, that back part of your knee is called the popliteal fossa, a fossa is just a hollow. So we have like the antecubital fossa on the, at the front part of our elbow. And then in the knee, we have the popliteal fossa and, um, there's a weak spot on the back part of that and that bursa that is filled with fluid sometimes under pressure or if you've had an injury to the knee, it can sort of squeeze through that space and um, it can do that over time or it can totally rupture and all of the fluid that was in that bursa will go into the surrounding tissues. So, Um, But the swelling, you're, you know, 15 years, long time to have it. And certainly it can, you know, anytime you do something to produce more fluid or produce more pressure, it's just like a balloon. So it's going through a space, a little weakness in the back part of your knee capsule, and it's protruding out into the tissues behind that. And you said it feels crowded because it is crowded. Like that's impeding the movement of your knee. Uh, and uh, while that's filling up with fluid, it really is not going to get any better. And you can have periods where it goes down. So basically you can resorb a lot of that fluid. And then if you re-aggravate the knee, it can pouch back out again because of increased pressure and increased fluids. Sometimes that thing will, will rupture too. And when that happens, that that uh, swelling in the back of your knee that has that fluid, that fluid will, will rupture just like again like a water balloon if you if you pop it and that goes all the way down into the surrounding structures and then it can go down with gravity all the way down the back of your calf to um Mm. to the lower extremity and sometimes it'll bleed to there in there too so people will say i felt this pop all of this over the next week i've had like the bottom part of my leg or the calf is hurting and then it becomes sort of uh like it's almost like it's bruised so Medications can help sometimes, like NSAIDs, that's just your Advil, ibuprofen, Mm -hmm. those kinds of things. But if you've had it for 15 years, the absolute best way to correct that is surgery. Um, And it's not like a big knee surgery. It's pretty easy to do. And they basically go in and find where that bursa is is poking out through the back side of the knee and they just sort of uh, close it up right there. And it's almost like a hernia surgery for your knee. I guess I've never thought mm-hmm. of it like that, but mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. basically mm-hmm. what we're talking about. Very uh, low risk surgery. And it's one that it should be an outpatient surgery that you can just go in and get it done and go home the next day and probably move your knee around pretty good within a couple of days. Um, but that's that's what I would suggest is that's about the okay. only thing that's going to take care of it is seeing an orthopedic surgeon, and again, that is a super easy one to do
0: oh good,
2: and what do you have a feel for how do you wear a brace or a sleeve or After, or not or stay off of it a couple of days? Or? yeah,
4: I think it would just be limited uh probably not much longer than a week at the most, but um yeah, if that's all they're doing, then there's not really much to do. Because, again, they're just, you know, sewing uh-huh. that thing. Plugging uh, the hole. Right, mm-hmm. plugging the hole, plugging the dike. Uh-huh. Uh, and uh, it's, it's you know, that's probably going to be within a couple of days, you're going to be up and around and feeling good. They would probably say not do really strenuous things. You know, there's certain mm-hmm. movements of the knee that are going to increase that pressure more than others. So, for instance, mm-hmm. deep um, if you you know squat down and you're bending your knee all the way to its limit, that's going to put a lot of pressure mm-hmm. on that joint. Or if you're doing a lot mm-hmm. of jumping, or you know, if you're going out and playing basketball <laughs> or skiing or something like that, you might want to put that on hold. But um, mm-hmm. but just in the normal walking around, probably a couple a day or two of just taking it easy, and then from there, it's not it's not that big a deal.
2: Okay. Well,
5: thank you. It sounds like what
4: I need to know. Appreciate yep. it. I, I, thank you for calling common thing. Baker's cyst. A baker's cyst. It's And people are like, well, why do we call it a baker's cyst? And I've remembered the story from a long time ago. I used to like to look these things up, like, historically. So... Um, I think it alluded to, I'll try to do this in the next break and look this up, but basically it's like a baker would make something and it would rise, uh, and you'd have these air pockets within it. So, uh, that's sort of the background for that. This is Dr. Jimmy with you this morning answering your healthcare questions. Got a couple of really good ones so far. I'd encourage you to call in right now with those. Got a follow-up from our last caller that called about a Baker's cyst in her knee. So in the mid-1800s, Dr. William Morant, M-O-R-R-A-N-T, Baker, concluded that these little cysts resulted from fluing coming out of a damaged uh, knee joint. So that's to Dr. Baker. And a lot of things are either named after the doctor that uh, discovered them, or they um, are named after a, um, a patient that had the, uh, the uh, diagnosis, the first one that was described at least. So a little bit of history there with uh, answering your questions. And let's go to Sheila from Biloxi. Hi. Hey, thanks for calling.
0: Well, thank you for taking my call. Uh, I have what I think is a baker's cyst, and uh, I saw an orthopedist, and he uh, uh, didn't really help me much. He said it might be a baker's cyst. And then after I, it was just a lump on the back of my knee. But then my leg got so swollen and painful that I couldn't walk. But I just waited it out, and it went away after about a month. Now I have a complication, and that is I have a varicose vein um that uh, the blood was restricted by a faulty valve in my leg, and the blood cooled up and then made a sort of an offshoot into some other place and um, my uh, cardiologist wants to do a uh, operation where he goes into my thigh with some kind of wire and goes down to the where the blood is going in the wrong place and there's some adhesive that he's going to insert into that vein that will just close up the vein and I suppose force the blood to go into the right place but he wants to do this without any anesthesia and I am terrified and I'm terrified that the swollen knee from the Baker's cyst is going to make it difficult for him to feed this lead down to the, you know, the bad vein. Um, and I, I don't know, you know, can I have that operation, like the treatment for the Baker's cyst and the treatment for the vein done at the same time or I I'm I'm so scared I'm, about doing this you know he's going to poke a hole in my thigh with no deadening agent and um I asked about it I said don't you use lidocaine or something and he said oh no that might, might make your vein twitch and so anyway I I don't know what to do um I'm you know I'm so afraid that I may just cancel the whole thing and live with it
4: yeah, you may you may want to get a second opinion on that. So two separate things, right? So we have the Baker cyst, which we you know we talked about. It's not a, if you do have that, and that's an easy thing to you know honestly most most of the time you can diagnose it just on on looking at it. But if it's if it's not that swollen at the time that your physician is looking at it, even if they're experienced, sometimes it can be a little bit difficult to make that diagnosis. But there's a couple of ways to image that, and one is uh, ultrasound, and uh, ultrasound, particularly when it's swollen, it's pretty easy to see the structures in the back of the knee. There's not anything really in between those, and you can see that little out pocket of fluid there um, and uh, make the diagnosis. They can drain those, too. Uh, in the office. Now, I wouldn't think that the, the, the other issue is the the vein issue, and I'm not sure if that's just a varicosity. And varicose veins are veins that have become much, much bigger just because of increased pressures in those veins, and they're usually surface veins that are more, um, more affected by this. And uh, the valve issue that you mentioned, that's a possibility over time because our valves get a little bit more leaky over time. Those are more of cosmetic problems, except in a few circumstances. But if you have a connection between one vein and another system, like an arterial system, sometimes they have to close those up. So, um, you know, it they do uh, sclerotherapy, which it sounds like this is what they're going to do, is basically they feed, like you said, feed a wire down in a little small tube down into the vein to the point where they want to close that down. And the little glue that you mentioned sort of uh closes that off so that those veins then... Uh, regress. You don't really need those surface veins. At least you don't need you know a lot of them there because they're deeper vein systems that drain that blood back up to the heart. It is a very you know it's an outpatient procedure. It's usually very well tolerated. I think they may not you know that most people do like a little bit of injection of lidocaine right around the site where they're going to put this in. You can do that right underneath the skin in your groin and not directly inject it into the vein itself. It's true. You wouldn't want to do that in the vein because lidocaine can cause some other problems. Um, but most people do okay with that. Now, they sometimes some other people will give you, just because you don't want somebody moving around while they're doing that, they'll give you a little bit of something, sort of like what they give for colonoscopies, for instance, where you're sedated a little bit. Most people say, you know, they don't mind the colonoscopy because it's the best sleep they ever had, uh, during that. I'm getting a thumbs up from people in the studio here, but, um, that may be something that they can do, but everybody does that a little bit different. We call that conscious sedation. In other words, you're breathing on your own, you're conscious through that, but it sedates you enough to where you're very relaxed and it's just, you know, you can have a nice little nap, uh, but you're easily awoken from that. And that that's, you know, definitely monitored. I don't know. You'd have to have somebody. It, it's two different sets of physicians and it's hard to get them sometimes in the same OR for particularly for elective, you know, elective procedures. Both of these sound like are elective procedures. In other words, these yeah. aren't these aren't life threatening, you know, or or it's not uh, doesn't sound like there's a big issue there. So you could probably sequence those if you wanted to, um, you know, to to. Uh, Try to see, but it sounds like they don't quite have a handle on whether or not this is a Baker cyst. But that would again, you could do an MRI, you could do a, a ultrasound uh, in the office uh, just to see if that's what that is, and then maybe wait on one or the other.
0: Okay, okay. They, this the my insurance is paying for the vein procedure. Mm-hmm. So, and uh, the doctor said that if it were just cosmetic, they wouldn't pay for it. So I'm assuming it's some, you know, actual medical requirement. Yeah, yeah,
4: and they they oftentimes will do that. And, uh, you know, it's not uh, cosmetics probably. It's one of those words that's a little confusing from the medical side of it. So people are like, hey, I want my legs to look better. But really it can cause some problems. You do have decreased blood flow and blood pooling, and that can cause some problems with infection in some individuals, particularly if you have other medical problems like diabetes Um, it can leave the front part of the leg with a sort of a bronzing color too if it's widespread so it's you know there are some some definite medical reasons for doing it but um um, you know it's life-threatening versus elective elective procedures aren't necessarily all cosmetic stuff is pretty much elective however not every elective procedure is cosmetic Mm -hmm. right But, yeah, just go go back and talk to them. Don't let them force you into anything you don't want to do and that you don't have all the information on it yet. That's important. You need to feel comfortable with that.
0: Okay. Thank you.
4: Yes, ma'am. Thank you for calling. This is Southern Remedy. Dr. Jimmy with you this morning, answering your questions about any kind of health care issues that you might be going through right now. You can also email us. That email address is remedy at mpbonline.org. Let's go to Dorothy from Memphis. Good morning, Dorothy. Welcome. What's your question this morning?
3: Okay, I went to a dentist that are kind of like make partials. Uh Uh-huh. When I went into the dentist, I, of course, was was not told anything about an X-ray, but anyway. Yes, I was. I'm sorry. I was told about an X-ray. But I didn't know that he would not release my X-ray to my regular dentist because the only thing he does is make partials and pull teeth. So I had a couple of teeth that need need pulling. And I said, well, I might as well go back to my dentist for preventive care and just make (sighs) him partials yeah but when I tried to get my records, he would not release my records. He said he was not going to release my x-rays to my preventive care dentist, and I thought that was
4: yeah that's a little okay. odd i Here's what I would do um you know your medical records you can request that those be shared with whoever you want to and um the you know dental records are are a part of that. What you might want to do is ask your regular dentist to request them directly. I mean, ultimately, you have to you know, give them permission to do that. And a lot of times, dental offices and, and medical offices will have forms that you just sign. But I would think, particularly if your regular dentist just gave him a call and said, hey, I'd like to have Dorothy's records um, on this, including the x-ray, if that's what he needs. Now, you may want to talk to your regular de- dentist. He may not need that at all. Um, But to sort of save yourself, what I I think where this where the question was going to is like saving an X-ray where they don't have to repeat it. Um, You know, that that might be something that might be useful. I will say, you know, a lot of people will will be concerned about the amount of radiation that they're getting with a regular X-ray, particularly with the X-ray machines today and the improved technology. It is a very, very small amount. Um, So a regular x-ray, including dental x-rays, is an incredibly small amount of radiation that you're exposed to. And it's not thought to be, you know, a big cause of any kind of negative health problem. So, um, but yeah, call your regular dentist and say, hey, do you need this? And would this save me getting an x-ray with you? And could you just request that information and see what they can do?
3: Okay, so you're saying it in case I do need if he doesn't release them, and I have to have enough another X-ray. And what are the expenses of be? something? What now? The X-ray overhead.
4: What? What's the X-ray for? Are you talking about? Yes, yeah, Yeah. anytime they do an x-ray, basically they're, they're looking at tooth. Well, I'm not a dentist, so I'm, I would need to call up my friend Chris Henry on that. But uh, But basically what they're doing is they're looking at not only the teeth, but also the roots of those teeth and the bone structure underneath those teeth. And that's going to impact how they either extract a tooth or the planning process of those partials. That would impact that. So X-rays are important. There's also a type of x-ray called a Panorex, which is that's one that sort of rotates around your jaw from one side to the other. That's a little bit better in picking up soft tissue problems. Um, but yeah, x-rays are part of dental care in, in you know in some instances. So if they're going to do extractions almost always, they'll uh, want an x-ray to see. What they're pulling out because they if if there's a problem underneath the surface in the jaw because those roots, particularly as you get older, those roots can be pretty deep, um, they're going to need to know that before they get in there and muck up the the space
3: okay, then. thank you
4: <laughs> all right, but yeah call call your regular dentist there, Dorothy probably can get you get you the information you need. Next we have Lavana on the line. Good morning, Lavana.
5: Hey, good morning. How you doing? I heard you guys talking about a baker's fist earlier on your knee. Yeah. Saturday morning, uh, Sunday morning, I woke up and my knee was hurting, and I could not turn it over or will it to move.
3: <laughs> and
5: um, maybe it was maybe it was irritating and running up to my hip. I didn't know if so I got up and took um, a couple of pain relievers, you know, over-the-counter stuff. And the next morning, it was somewhat better, but I had to get my cane to walk, so I went to the after-hour clinic. So they did give me a tramadol shot in my hip, which, I mean, I've been feeling good since then. It's sort of wearing off. But, but would the Baker's cyst cause your knee to be like that?
4: Probably not. You can have a Baker's cyst with something else like that. Anytime you, your knee locks up or gives way um, or you're having significant pain on bearing weight on it, I mean, that's a little bit different. Now that can irritate that bursa, that sac that holds that fluid, to the point that you can have a baker's cyst. It can sort of like leak out into the back uh, of your knee space. but And it's common to have both those things. You know, usually there's a reason. There's some type of trauma that happened to the knee for that baker's cyst to form. But in and of itself, it shouldn't be a reason to to where you have that amount. Um, You know, a knee that gives away... While you're standing up or while you're just going through the motions for walking or certain movements, that's uh, a, a sort of a red flag for a ligament. The ligaments are what hold the bones together. And, you know, the biggest ones we hear about on the knees, sort of if you watch a football game or something like that, sometimes they'll say, oh, he tore his ACL, his anterior cruciate ligament or his PCL or the lateral ligaments. So these are ligaments that hold that bone in place so that it can move the right way. And if you tear one of them, basically the knee is going to move in a direction it doesn't need to. A knee that locks up, they're, they're, you know. in addition to having those cushions, that bursa system in our body, we have cartilage and two specialized pieces of cartilage that are pretty big in between those bones in your knee joint. Uh, is the meniscus or menisci, I guess I should say. Yeah, so I
5: had that on my left
4: knee. Yeah, so so a medial meniscus and a lateral meniscus, are, uh, they are more like um, cushions. So they're not filled with water, but they're sort of spongy and springy. And they mm-hmm. help to, uh, you don't want that bone to be grinding up against the bone that it's moving against. So their job is to provide that springiness. But if they tear... A little piece of that can sort of break off, and it can impinge the knee's movement. Like people will say, "Well, I was running, or I was walking, and all of a sudden my knee locked up, or my knee mm. quit moving." That might be at least a meniscal injury, and it they certainly you can do a lot of uh, a really skilled orthopedic surgeon or even a a primary care physician can do some uh, a a very focused exam on the knee with a couple of different maneuvers and can pretty much tell you what the problem is even before you go to something like an MRI. MRI is great at looking at those soft tissue structures and the menisci and the uh, ligaments to that. So I don't think this is you know this is a Baker's cyst although you could have had the Baker's cyst with it but that's not what what's causing the knee to do do that. Now, I would be, you know, some things can be referred to the knee. In other words, the pain is really starting somewhere else, like the hip or even lower than the knee, and it's referred back to the knee. That's where you're feeling okay. the pain. So there are some other things that can do that. Um, and the, even in your back, too. I mean, a lot of knee pain. Yeah,
5: because can, my hip was hurting. It was hurting. Yep. And they did do an x-ray, but they said they didn't see anything. And they said MRI would be the next step.
4: Right. X-rays, remember, x-rays show really hard things So, uh, for the most mm-hmm. part. I know we just talked about dental x-rays maybe being a little bit different. But basically, if you're getting an x-ray, you can see, you can see some things, like in the lungs, uh, you can see air patterns in the in the stomach, but it 's really they 're really really good at those those bones basically okay. and in the hip it 's showing you that what an x ray does not show are all those ligaments and the cartilage in the hip those kinds of things uh it 'll show you the okay. joint space, but an m r i shows you not only the bones, but in very good detail, like the muscles. You can see muscle tears with an MRI, all the soft tissue-type things. Because of the way the MRI works, that's that's what it's going to pick up on.
5: You know, I was sort of wondering about that because Medicare had denied some x-rays for me once before. And um, so I'm wondering if they're going to deny this also. But now one more thing. Does alcohol affect joints in the knee?
4: Uh, alcohol can uh, affect it depends on how much so certainly if you drink a lot of alcohol it can affect the blood flow Uh, to a lot of those joints, but usually not. Um, I wouldn't drink alcohol as a treatment for any kind of pain. That's uh, probably not something that's good to do. Uh, And then back to your other comment too about, you know, denying certain things, there is sort of a progression. So if somebody comes in with like hip or knee pain and x-rays, almost always their insurance will pay for that unless it's something's wrong with the documentation. But then you can't, necessarily jump straight to an mri a lot of times unless you're a super specialist and even then they have to sort of jump through some hoops that's just sort of the health system way that we live in in most most instances so yeah i just follow up with your primary care for doctor and they may want you to see you know a specialist after that Well, that's all the time we have for the hour. I want to thank everybody for calling. Southern Remedy is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting, Think Radio, and is funded in part by a grant from the University of Mississippi Medical Center. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, your host for Southern Remedy.
1: This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand.